book two section twenty three of the world as will and idea volume one by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine book two the world as will first aspect the objectification of the will section twenty three the will as a thing in itself is quite different from its phenomenal appearance and entirely free from all the forms of the phenomenal into which it first passes when it manifests itself and which therefore only concern its objectivity and are foreign to the will itself even the most universal form of all idea that of being object for a subject does not concern it still less the forms which are subordinate to this and which collectively have their common expression in the principle of sufficient reason to which we know that time and space belong and consequently multiplicity also which exists and is possible only through these in this last regard i shall call time and space the principium individuationis borrowing an expression from the old schoolmen and i beg to draw attention to this once for all for it is only through the medium of time and space that what is one and the same both according to its nature and to its concept yet appears as different as a multiplicity of co-existent and successive phenomena thus time and space are the principium individuationis the subject of so many subtleties and disputes among the schoolmen which may be found collected in suarez according to what has been said the will as a thing in itself lies outside the province of the principle of sufficient reason in all its forms and is consequently completely groundless although all its manifestations are entirely subordinated to the principle of sufficient reason further it is free from all multiplicity although its manifestations in time and space are innumerable it is itself one though not in the sense in which an object is one for the unity of an object can only be known in opposition to a possible multiplicity nor yet in the sense in which a concept is one for the unity of a concept originates only in abstraction from a multiplicity but it is one as that which lies outside time and space the principium individuationis that is the possibility of multiplicity only when all this has become quite clear to us through the subsequent examination of the phenomena and different manifestations of the will shall we fully understand the meaning of the kantian doctrine that time space and causality do not belong to the thing in itself but are only forms of knowing the uncaused nature of will has been actually recognized where it manifests itself most distinctly as the will of man and this has been called free independent but on account of the uncaused nature of the will itself the necessity to which its manifestation is everywhere subjected has been overlooked and actions are treated as free which they are not for every individual action follows with strict necessity from the effect of the motive upon the character all necessity is as we have already said the relation of the consequent to the reason and nothing more 
the principle of sufficient reason is the universal form of all phenomena and man in his action must be subordinated to it like every other phenomenon but because in self-consciousness the will is known directly and in itself in this consciousness lies also the consciousness of freedom the fact is however overlooked that the individual the person is not will as a thing in itself but is a phenomenon of will is already determined as such and has come under the form of the phenomenal the principle of sufficient reason hence arises the strange fact that every one believes himself a priori to be perfectly free even in his individual actions and thinks that at every moment he can commence another manner of life which just means that he can become another person but a posteriori through experience he finds to his astonishment that he is not free but subjected to necessity that in spite of all his resolutions and reflections he does not change his conduct and that from the beginning of his life to the end of it he must carry out the very character which he himself condemns and as it were play the part he has undertaken to the end i cannot pursue this subject further at present for it belongs as ethical to another part of this work in the meantime i only wish to point out here that the phenomenon of the will which in itself is uncaused is yet as such subordinated to the law of necessity that is the principle of sufficient reason so that in the necessity with which the phenomena of nature follow each other we may find nothing to hinder us from recognizing in them the manifestations of will only those changes which have no other ground than a motive that is an idea have hitherto been regarded as manifestations of will therefore in nature a will has only been attributed to man or at the most to animals for knowledge the idea is of course as i have said elsewhere the true and exclusive characteristic of animal life but that the will is also active where no knowledge guides it we see at once in the instinct and the mechanical skill of animals that they have ideas and knowledge is here not to the point for the end towards which they strive as definitely as if it were a known motive is yet entirely unknown to them therefore in such cases their action takes place without motive is not guided by the idea and shows us first and most distinctly how the will may be active entirely without knowledge the bird of a year old has no idea of the eggs for which it builds a nest the young spider has no idea of the prey for which it spins a web nor has the ant-lion any idea of the ants for which he digs a trench for the first time the larva of the stag beetle makes the hole in the wood in which it is to await its metamorphosis twice as big as if it is going to be a male beetle as if it is going to be a female so that if it is a male there may be room for the horns of which however it has no idea in such actions of these creatures the will is clearly operative as in their other actions but it is in blind activity which is indeed accompanied by knowledge but not guided by it if now we have once gained insight into the fact that idea as motive is not a necessary and essential condition of the activity of the will we shall more easily recognize the activity of will where it is less apparent for example we shall see that the house of the snail 
is no more made by a will which is foreign to the snail itself than the house which we build is produced through another will than our own but we shall recognize in both houses the work of a will which objectifies itself in both the phenomena a will which works in us according to motives but in the snail still blindly as formative impulse directed outwards in us also the same will is in many ways only blindly active in all the functions of our body which are not guided by knowledge in all its vital and vegetative processes digestion circulation secretion growth reproduction not only the actions of the body but the whole body itself is as we have shown above phenomenon of the will objectified will concrete will all that goes on in it must therefore proceed through will although here this will is not guided by knowledge but acts blindly according to causes which in this case are called stimuli i call a cause in the narrowest sense of the word that state of matter which while it introduces another state with necessity yet suffers just as great a change itself as that which it causes which is expressed in the rule action and reaction are equal further in the case of what is properly speaking a cause the effect increases directly in proportion to the cause and therefore also the reaction so that if once the mode of operation be known the degree of the effect may be measured and calculated from the degree of the intensity of the cause and conversely the degree of the intensity of the cause may be calculated from the degree of the effect such causes properly so called operate in all the phenomena of mechanics chemistry and so forth in short in all the changes of unorganized bodies on the other hand i call a stimulus such a cause as sustains no reaction proportional to its effect and the intensity of which does not vary directly in proportion to the intensity of its effect so that the effect cannot be measured by it on the contrary a small increase of the stimulus may cause a very great increase of the effect or conversely it may eliminate the previous effect altogether and so forth all effects upon organized bodies as such are of this kind all properly organic and vegetative changes of the animal body must therefore be referred to stimuli not to mere causes but the stimulus like every cause and motive generally never determines more than the point of time and space at which the manifestation of every force is to take place and does not determine the inner nature of the force itself which is manifested this inner nature we know from our previous investigation is will to which therefore we ascribe both the unconscious and the conscious changes of the body the stimulus holds the mean forms and the transition between the motive which is causality accompanied throughout by knowledge and the cause in the narrowest sense in particular cases it is sometimes nearer a motive sometimes nearer a cause but yet it can always be distinguished from both thus for example the rising of the sap in a plant follows upon stimuli and cannot be explained from mere causes according to the laws of hydraulics or capillary attraction yet it is certainly assisted by these and altogether approaches very nearly to a purely causal change on the other hand the movements of the hydisarum girans and the mimosa pudica although still following upon mere stimuli 
are yet very like movements which follow upon motives and seem almost to wish to make the transition the contraction of the pupils of the eyes as the light is increased is due to stimuli but it passes into movement which is due to motive for it takes place because too strong lights would affect the retina painfully and to avoid this we contract the pupils the occasion of an erection is a motive because it is an idea yet it operates with the necessity of a stimulus that is it cannot be resisted but we must put the idea away in order to make it cease to affect us this is also the case with disgusting things which excite the desire to vomit thus we have treated the instinct of animals as an actual link of quite a distinct kind between movement following upon stimuli and action following upon a known motive now we might be asked to regard breathing as another link of this kind it has been disputed whether it belongs to the voluntary or the involuntary movements that is to say whether it follows upon motive or stimulus and perhaps it may be explained as something which is between the two marshall hall in on the diseases of the nervous system section two hundred ninety three explains it as a mixed function for it is partly under the influence of the cerebral voluntary and partly under that of the spinal non-voluntary nerves however we are finally obliged to number it with the expressions of will which result from motives for other motives that is mere ideas can determine the will to check it or accelerate it and as is the case with every other voluntary action it seems to us that we could give up breathing altogether and voluntarily suffocate and in fact we could do so if any other motive influenced the will sufficiently strongly to overcome the pressing desire for air according to some accounts diogenes actually put an end to his life in this way certain negroes also are said to have done this if this be true it affords us a good example of the influence of abstract motives that is of the victory of distinctively rational over merely animal will for that breathing is at least partially conditioned by cerebral activity is shown by the fact that the primary cause of death from prussic acid is that it paralyzes the brain and so indirectly restricts the breathing but if the breathing be artificially maintained till the stupefaction of the brain has passed away death will not ensue we may also observe in passing that breathing affords us the most obvious example of the fact that motives act with just as much necessity as stimuli or as causes in the narrowest sense of the word and their operation can only be neutralized by antagonistic motives as action is neutralized by reaction for in the case of breathing the illusion that we can stop when we like is much weaker than in the case of other movements which follow upon motives because in breathing the motive is very powerful very near to us and its satisfaction is very easy for the muscles which accomplish it are never tired nothing as a rule obstructs it and the whole process is supported by the most inveterate habit of the individual and yet all motives act with the same necessity the knowledge that necessity is common to movements following upon motives and those following upon stimuli makes it easier for us to understand that that also which takes place in our bodily organism in accordance with stimuli and in obedience to law is yet according to its inner nature will which in all its manifestations though never in itself 
is subordinated to the principle of sufficient reason that is to necessity accordingly we shall not rest contented with recognizing that animals both in their actions and also in their whole existence bodily structure and organization are manifestations of will but we shall extend to plants also this immediate knowledge of the essential nature of things which is given to us alone now all the movements of plants follow upon stimuli for the absence of knowledge and the movement following upon motives which is conditioned by knowledge constitutes the only essential difference between animals and plants therefore what appears for the idea as plant life as mere vegetation as blindly impelling force we shall claim according to its inner nature for will and recognize it as just that which constitutes the basis of our own phenomenal being as it expresses itself in our actions and also in the whole existence of our body itself it only remains for us to take the final step the extension of our way of looking at things to all those forces which act in nature in accordance with universal unchangeable laws in conformity with which the movements of all those bodies take place which are wholly without organs and have therefore no susceptibility for stimuli and have no knowledge which is the necessary condition of motives thus we must also apply the key to the understanding of the inner nature of things which the immediate knowledge of our own existence alone can give us to those phenomena of the unorganized world which are most remote from us and if we consider them attentively if we observe the strong and unceasing impulse with which the waters hurry to the ocean the persistency with which the magnet turns ever to the north pole the readiness with which iron flies to the magnet the eagerness with which the electric poles seek to be reunited and which just like human desire is increased by obstacles if we see the crystal quickly and suddenly take form with such wonderful regularity of construction which is clearly only a perfectly definite and accurately determined impulse in different directions seized and retained by crystallization if we observe the choice with which bodies repel and attract each other combine and separate when they are set free in a fluid state and emancipated from the bonds of rigidness lastly if we feel directly how a burden which hampers our body by its gravitation towards the earth unceasingly presses and strains upon it in pursuit of its one tendency if we observe all this i say it will require no great effort of the imagination to recognize even at so great a distance our own nature that which in us pursues its ends by the light of knowledge but here in the weakest of its manifestations only strives blindly and dumbly in a one-sided and unchangeable manner must yet in both cases come under the name of will as it is everywhere one and the same just as the first dim light of dawn must share the name of sunlight with the rays of the full midday for the name will denotes that which is the inner nature of everything in the world and the one kernel of every phenomenon yet the remoteness and indeed the appearance of absolute difference between the phenomena of unorganized nature and the will which we know as the inner reality of our own being arises chiefly from the contrast between the completely determined conformity to law of the one species of phenomena and the apparently unfettered freedom of the other 
for in man individuality makes itself powerfully felt every one has a character of his own and therefore the same motive has not the same influence over all and a thousand circumstances which exist in the wide sphere of the knowledge of the individual but are unknown to others modify its effect therefore action cannot be predetermined from the motive alone for the other factor is wanting the accurate acquaintance with the individual character and with the knowledge which accompanies it on the other hand the phenomena of the forces of nature illustrate the opposite extreme they act according to universal laws without variation without individuality in accordance with openly manifest circumstances subject to the most exact predetermination and the same force of nature appears in its million phenomena in precisely the same way in order to explain this point and prove the identity of the one indivisible will in all its different phenomena in the weakest as in the strongest we must first of all consider the relation of the will as thing in itself to its phenomena that is the relation of the world as will to the world as idea for this will open to us the best way to a more thorough investigation of the whole subject we are considering in this second book end of book two section twenty three recording by expatriate in bangor maine